So that's the question. Is what you know of God leading you to worship God? Now, what's at stake here is not just a question of one's personal worship, uh, but it's actually something a little bit bigger, is your personal witness. So if what you know of God is leading you to worship God, then the people around you, whether it's in your immediate family, whether it's people in your neighborhood, whether it's people in your work, will take notice of you. Why? Because you're a man or a woman who knows who God is, and because of what you know of God, it's leading you to worship. And that's the lifestyle that you're leading is one of just great joy, one of great gratitude. And you'll actually, by your lifestyle, begin to inspire people, encourage people, motivate people just through your personal witness of worship. So this question is really a big question of not just how it will impact your personal worship of God, uh, but it will impact your personal witness. And it's a challenging question, but do people look at you and say, I want to know what you know, because clearly I'm missing something. I watch you, I listen to you, I observe you, I pay attention, and there's something clearly different about you. You know something that I don't, and whatever it is, I want to know it. Um, so this is a really big question of, is what you know of God actually leading you to worship God? Now, for Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, who uh, wrote the letter of uh, Romans, uh, as he concludes Romans chapter 11, uh, he's covered some really challenging theological questions about who God is and how God has operated in time and in history. And, um, and the more that Paul has sat with God, thought about God, and has been writing these things, it's actually led him to a conclusion of, this is a God I can worship. This is a God I must worship. This is not a God that is to be dissected and just left on the dissecting table. This is a God that must be lifted up and exalted and worshiped. So at the end of section one of Romans, which is the end of Romans 11, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's an amazing what we would call that as a doxology, a hymn of praise. As he's thought about God, wrestled with God, it's led him to say, uh, how amazing are, is God and the things of God? How unsearchable are these things? But it led him to worship. Now, I quoted this man last week, but it's worth mentioning again. Uh, and this is uh, an author, Pastor Sam Storm, said this, The ultimate goal of theology isn't knowledge, but worship. If our learning and knowledge of God do not lead to the joyful praise of God, we fail. The only theology worth studying is a theology that can be sung. I really want for me, my lifestyle, and I desire for those of us here in Genesis that our lifestyle, the way we live and act and the things that we talk about and just our lifestyle, it would be infectious and contagious to people around us where they would say, I want to know what you know because I'm missing something. And so when you are a person who is worshiping, and worshiping is so much bigger than the songs that we sing on Sunday, it's a lifestyle that people would be drawn to say, I want to know God like you do, because I don't. And you have something that I don't. 
So last week we looked at reasons. What are some reasons that Paul lays out in Romans 11 of why we should worship God? And the two that we made it through were God does not reject those who reject him. God does not live with a rejection complex. Uh, So God does not reject those that reject him. That was number one. And number two was God is faithful to those that he's called. So to those that God has called into relationship with himself, God is absolutely infinitely faithful to those people. Even if those go through seasons of unfaithfulness or wandering or sin, God remains faithful to those individuals. Now, hopefully I have four more that I was going to cover last week, so hopefully I'll be able to cover them this week. Uh, But before I share some of these, I wanted to ask the question of, do you know people currently in your life who say that they really are interested or intrigued or they want to know more about God, but yet they still remain far from him? People in your immediate circle who they say, I'm I'm really interested. I want to know more about this Christianity thing. I want to know more about this God thing. But yet when there's opportunities to talk or invite them, whether it's to church or some other gathering, um, they seem, oh, I'm not really that interested. So they say one thing, I'm very interested, but yet they still remain pretty distant or pretty far from God, yet they still claim to be interested. In many ways, I'm sure we know people like that. And at some level, you have to ask, well, why is that? Why do people claim one thing, but yet they still remain very far? Like, if you really want to know God, then he's not hiding. He's not difficult. God's revealed himself. So then what's the, quite, or what's the problem or what's the issue? Now, in many ways, this was ancient Israel. They were the people of God. God had chosen them amongst all the other nations. God said, this is my people. But yet the people who were desirous to know God, they sought God. They still remain very far from him. This is what Paul says in Romans 11. I'll start in verse 7. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. Now, Paul is quoting some scripture, Old Testament scripture here from Deuteronomy chapter 29 and Isaiah uh, chapter 29. And Paul is actually introducing here for the second time uh, a pretty challenging truth in scripture. And it's this truth called uh, judicial abandonment. Uh, We actually talked about this when we looked at Romans 1. I realized that was about eight, nine months ago. Uh, But this idea of judicial abandonment simply means that God will let people go the way that they ultimately desire to go. It's this idea that God will not contend with people forever, that as people desire to go a certain way, in time, God will let them go the way that they desire ultimately to go. Uh, This is an example we used months ago, but if you've ever seen someone walking a dog, and the dog is just a freak, and just is always just pulling and pulling, and you see the the owner just trying to hold the leash back and hold this dog back, but the dog just sees a squirrel and just is bent on, I must go meet that squirrel, whatever it might be. In time, it's the, the owner the, of the dog just lets the dog go. He cannot keep fighting with this dog. If he wants to go that way, he eventually lets him go. Now, that's not a perfect picture of judicial abandonment, but it's a picture of God will not contend God will let us go our own way. 
Now, it's not that we tire God out. We're like, God is like, wow, I am exhausted from holding these people back on a leash. And we've just worn God down. No, God will let us go our own way to accomplish something in our lives for a very redemptive purpose. So when there is judicial abandonment, which is another way of saying there's discipline, God lets us go. God is doing this for the purpose of a redemptive thing. Now, if you consider Israel, they claimed to want to see God. They claimed to want to hear from God. They claimed to want to know God. But when the Messiah showed up, when Jesus showed up, and they could see him, they rejected him. When they heard the good news, when they heard the message of the gospel that a relationship with God is possible, not because of works or observance of the law, but because of faith and faith alone in Christ, they refused that message. They rejected that message. They rejected seeing the Messiah. So even though they said, I want to see, when they could see, they refused to see. Even though they said, I want to hear, when they did hear, they refused the message that was being passed along of the gospel. So this is, if you go back, it says, uh, it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, so that they could not see, and ears that they could not hear. Wanted to see, but they refused to see. They wanted to hear, but they refused to hear. This is going back and maybe answering another question of why is it that people claim that they want to know God, but they want to know God on their terms. They don't want to know God as God has presented himself to us. They want to know how, for Israel specifically, it was, I will know God through my works, through my achievement, through my effort uh, of getting to God, of earning God. And so when the message of the gospel of grace came through, they refused it. They couldn't see it, and they could not hear it. So what is, if there is a redemptive purpose when there is judicial abandonment, when God lets someone go, when there is discipline in our lives, why, what is the redemptive purpose in the judicial abandonment of the Jewish people? And the answer I think is amazing is salvation for the Gentile. Meaning if you're not a Jewish person, you're a Gentile, okay? So we might have folks from a Jewish background here today, but if you're not from a Jewish background, you are considered a Gentile. Now, the redemptive purpose of judicial abandonment with the Jews was the Gentiles, salvation became a reality. Salvation became a possibility. So reason number three of why we should worship God is because God has made salvation possible for all. That's why we worship God is because he's made salvation, he's made heaven a reality, a possibility for all, not just the Jews, but now also for the Gentiles. Paul says this in Romans 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? He's talking about the Jewish people. Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Verse 12, but if their transgressions means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Now, I'll just warn you, as we're going to head a little bit deeper into Romans 11, it is some really challenging things that Paul is going to present. So 
Uh, I'm going to do my best to present it with clarity, but I'm going to ask you that you would really stick with what Paul is trying to communicate here. Third reason was we can worship God, we should worship God, because he's made salvation possible for the Gentiles. Now, God did not reject the Gentiles, There's a, or the Jewish people, a difference of abandonment or a difference of discipline and complete rejection. So God did not reject But what God has done is made possible for you, for me, for those of us who are Gentiles, to have a relationship with God. And did you catch why? Why, What would be the benefit of Gentiles having salvation? How would that possibly benefit the Jewish people? And Paul answers that question of one reason that salvation came to the Gentiles was so that the Jews would become jealous that the Jews would become envious of the impact that salvation was having on other people. Meaning the Jewish people would look at your life for those who were coming to faith, placing their faith in Jesus, they would see the impact that a relationship with God based on grace that was having on you, and they would become jealous or envious for what you have. Now, this is, uh, I think... uh, a pretty a good picture here, but Paul says the Gentiles have now been invited to the party, and the Jewish people should look at those who've been invited to the party and say, we're missing out. We're missing out. Look at this party that is taking place. Look at salvation and how it's having an impact on the Gentile people. Now, have you ever seen someone who's got party afterglow? Okay? I'm not talking about the party where people like they can't remember what happened the night before. That's not party afterglow. That was a really bad night. I'm talking about the party where a person comes back from the party and they're just beaming. They're just gleaming, as it were, with like, it was the most amazing event I've ever attended. And you're thinking, wow, I wish I could have gone. I wish I would have been there. And the way they talk about it, it's so exciting. It's kind of like when I talk about Chipotle, I leave people in a state of, they must go to Chipotle. I'm not kidding. Like, I've converted a lot of people to Chipotle from its evil, I won't go there. Um, But when I talk about it, it's this, you get so excited about it. You're like, wow, that's, it's the most, I've never had it, but I want to go. Have you ever been around someone, whether it was that silly example of Chipotle or literally the party after glow? Like, I guarantee after yesterday's game of 14, 15 innings, how many of the 30, 40,000 people that were at the game went home to their friends and neighbor and family and said, it was the most amazing thing. You should have been there. It was absolutely awesome. And it created, it stirred in those people a desire of, man, I wish, I wish I could have been there. This really begs another question for us Gentile Christians to really wrestle with, and it's this. Is how you live, is it making anyone jealous or envious? Is the way that you are living your life with God, for God, on mission with God, is it making anyone jealous or envious? I'm not talking about people who are jealous jealous or envious because of your job or because of a relationship you have or because of possessions or monies or, or degree. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about Is the way you live life with God, is it actually stirring in someone else jealousy or envy 
for what you have with God. When I first met my wife, uh, Kyla, I was at um, uh, The Ohio State University, and I'd invited her. She was not a Christian uh, at the time, and I invited her to go to this uh, uh, campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, and they had these weekly meetings. And it was similar to church. There was some singing, there was a message, and you know some other things. And uh, it was a big thing. There was probably about 800 some odd people there. And uh, I tried to explain like what it was, and she was like, "So you just kind of stand around and sing?" And I was like, "I know it sounds really cheesy, but just just come, come check it out." And uh, she came, and the first time she came, um, one of my songs that I just don't like that we'll never do at Genesis is called "Shine Jesus Shine." It's just kind of, you know, it's my personal thing. I'm sorry if that's your favorite song, but you need to repent. And um, and we're singing this song, and it's just it's just really goofy. And um, I get it, it's, it's, you know, and I'm looking at Kyla, I'm like, oh my gosh, she's going to think this is the goofiest, cheesiest thing in the world, and I'm embarrassed, and after the end of the evening, I'm like, so how was it, what did you think? And her response was just brilliant, she's like, well, clearly I don't have some of what these people have. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I've never seen a room filled with people who had so much joy. Yeah, the songs were a bit on the cheesy side, but yet the people who were singing them, it was genuine. There was just joy in the room. She's like, I clearly am missing something. They have something that I don't have, and I want it. And literally within a few weeks, God just completely opened up her heart to the gospel, and she became a Christian, confessed Christ as Lord. It was amazing. But it started with one day when she got around a group of 800 people in a room singing and listening to message and talking and conversing. And she was like, they have joy. Like this is what church should be like. If someone who does not know God should be able to come into this place and walk out saying, clearly I met some phenomenal people who have joy. They have such gratitude. They have such love. And it's coming from somewhere. They're the nicest, most kindest people I've ever met. I've never been to a celebration as it were, where there wasn't some outside influence like alcohol or drugs, where people were genuinely happy. Is anyone observe you or by watching you saying, wow, what you have with God, I want that. I want that. Paul is saying the Jewish people should look at the way we live our life with God and they should be led towards jealousy or envy, as it were, that they would desire that as well. This is, um, I think, a pretty important truth that should have a profound impact, is that your life is a reflection of what you believe about God. Not just on Sundays from 10.30 to noon, but what you do on Monday at 10 a.m. or Wednesday at 3 p.m. Your life is an absolute reflection of what you believe about God. And so the question is, what are you reflecting to those around you? And are those around you saying, I want that. The joy that you have, I want that. I see how content you are in anything and everything. When things go bad, when things go good, you don't change. You're consistent. You're content. Whether you have a lot, whether you have a little, you're content. When people hear you talk about this place, this community, this church, There should be something in the way that we talk about our church community where people are like, I I don't know a community like that. Wow, if people are really as loving and gracious as you're explaining, 
I don't have that anywhere. I, I must meet this community that you call Genesis. People should look at the confidence and security that you have in God. And they'll notice, well, I, I, I see that you never worry. Why is it that you don't get anxious or worried? Well, because I know God and I trust that God's going to provide. It's not always easy, but I believe that God's going to provide. He's going to take care. He's going to cover. I don't have anything to fear. Why? Well, because God loves me. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. What possibly could I have to fear if, if I know the God of the universe loves me, demonstrated that love for me in the gospel and, and his son Christ, what possibly could I have to ever fear? Seriously. If the God of the universe loves you like he does and has demonstrated, what could we ever possibly fear? You paint whatever horrific scenario you want, God's bigger than that scenario. How about just kindness and winsomeness? If I could be a little bit more like you, then I'd, I, I want to be a little bit more like you. Because you're really kind. You're nice. You listen. You're winsome. You're not the dude who's just always angry or frustrated or complaining or whining. There's just, you're a winsome person. I love being with you because it impacts, I, it's a better day. Like people who don't know God should be around people like who know God and should say, I want to know the God that you do because I see the impact it's having on your life. Paul goes on in Romans 11, 13 through 14, and he says, I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. I just love that Paul's heart was, I'm going to keep fighting for my brothers. I'm going to keep living in such a way where my brothers, the Jewish culture and community, would see the God that's radically transformed my life. And I hope for us, for those of you who are Christians, your heart would be so bent on, my heart is so for my neighbor, for my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my, my person who lives in my neighborhood, my co whoever, is I'm going to do whatever I possibly can so that they would come to know the God that's radically changed me, transformed my life. Reason number four of why our theology should lead to doxology or worship is because God redeems all things for his glory and our good. God took a bad thing, the Jews rejecting Jesus. He turned it into a good thing, Gentiles now coming to salvation. And he's using that to win the Jews back to the gospel, to Jesus. God can take something that is absolutely horrific and redeem it for our good, for our benefit, that he would be glorified in the midst of that. I love and I'm thankful that we have a God who can take the horrific and redeem it for something beautiful. And it is horrific that not all, but a lot of Jews in Paul's day and our day have rejected the Messiah. But God is using that rejection for our good and what God is doing at work in us, he's using us to spur them on towards being desirous of a relationship with God based on grace, not based on works. Now, the danger in this, and Paul addresses this next, is you can become a very spiritually arrogant person. You can look at the life that you have with God, and you can look at someone, whether they're from a Jewish faith or a different faith, and you, became, you can 
begin to look down on that person. And Paul says there is absolutely no place for spiritual arrogance for you to ever look down on a Jewish person and rub your nose and say, look at what I have. I'm better than you. He says this in uh, Romans 11, verse 17 through 21. Um, If some of the branches have been broken off, he's using a horticultural example, olive tree, okay? This is um, how many people grew up on a farming, agrarian type of, none of you. How many grew up just around suburbs and buildings and never saw a tree in your life? Okay, awesome. Um, This is Paul's metaphor that made perfect sense to them. It might be a struggle for us to understand, but first century Jewish person would understand this with absolute clarity. If some of the branches have been broken off, Jewish people have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot. So Paul is already trying to humble us by like, you're just a wild olive shoot, okay? You're not of the natural tree. You're a wild olive shoot, okay? Have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, well, the branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Paul in verse 20, granted, okay? He agrees that that's what God has done, that those were broken off so that we, being Gentiles, could be grafted in to be the people of God. Goes in, verse 20, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. This, these few verses right here is the death blow, as it were, um, to anti-Semitism. There should be nothing. If you are a Christian, you should have nothing but gratitude towards those of the Jewish faith. There is no room for spiritual arrogance for us to look at them and say, wow, and sit in the judgment seat over them. I like how Paul uh, says it, do not boast. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You ever become, as it were, self-righteous or look down on someone else? You ever, obviously we've all done that, right? Uh, And it's pretty scary how quickly and often we actually become very self-righteous, very impressed with ourselves and what we've done. You can take a good thing and read your Bible in the morning and turn it into an idolatrous, sinful thing by mid-afternoon and be like, well, I read my Bible today. Certainly I'm impressed. God must be impressed and others around me. So it's quick, it's easy to to become self-righteous with the things that we have done. And it's easy to take that and then begin looking down on someone else. So we've all done that, but the question is, why do we look down on other people? Have you ever stopped to ask, well, why is it that I sit in this seat, as it were, and I'm looking down on all of those people for what they haven't done or for maybe what they are doing? The only reason that we become self-righteous or start judging or look down on other people is because we think we are here because we've We've earned it. We've achieved it. There's something that we've done to get in the spot where we are. 
And we forgot that we're only sitting here because of grace. The self-righteous one is only self-righteous because they are righteous in their own works, in their own attitudes, in their own actions. And so they're looking at their attitudes and actions and their works, as it were, and they become righteous of self-righteous and look down on others for what they're not doing, but what they're doing. So if you're a Christian and you know that this whole thing is by grace, that everything we have from the air that we breathe to the relationship with God that we have, it is all by grace. If you understand that, there will never be a time or place where you could become self-righteous, where you could look at someone else. And this was what was happening in the first century church as the Gentiles were becoming arrogant over the Jews. 2,000 years later, it still happens. Now, you might look and say, well, I'm not arrogant uh, or boasting, as it were, or self-righteous over Jewish people, but it happens really easily. Well, well, at least I'm not like a Catholic. How many times have you maybe not verbalized that, but you've thought that? Or at least you pick a denomination of a church. Well, at least I'm not like those Baptists or those Presbyterians or I don't know, you name it. Anytime we say things like that, or at least think things like that, you forgot that you're only here because of the grace of God. So Paul is making his point, there should be no place for self-righteousness or boasting or arrogance, because if you believe in grace, then you've got nothing to boast about. So I wanted to uh, ask a question of how does one repent of spiritual arrogance? Like how can we make sure that we avoid becoming the spiritually arrogant person, looking down on others? Uh, And I'll give you a few examples or a few answers to that question, but remember that you stand by faith. If you want to root out arrogance or boasting or self-righteousness from your life, know that your life with God is based by grace. It's based in faith. The only reason you have a relationship with God is because God was gracious to reveal a son to you. That's it. So that's number one, is the cross of Christ will root out of us any place for spiritual arrogance. I mean, it would be ridiculous for any man to ever look at what Christ did for him on the cross and say, well, the only reason he did that is because of what I've done. Like Jesus is ultimately paying me back for the things, the good things, the righteous things, whatever it was. No one could ever look at Christ and say, wow, I don't deserve what he's done but I receive it by faith. A second way we can root out spiritual arrogance is by remembering a very simple uh, horticultural principle from Paul's example. And it's this, the root supports the branches, not the other way around. Meaning our faith goes all the way back. We're going back to the patriarchs, people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We do not support them. What God has done with his chosen people is what actually is supporting us. So a second way that we stay spiritually humble, as it were, is to remember our roots, to remember where we've come from. A third way to root out spiritual arrogance is to remember uh, these three things that Paul mentioned, the kindness, the discipline, and the power of God in our lives. I read Romans 11, verse 22 through 24. He says this, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness, sternness also means discipline of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, meaning the Gentiles, provided that you continue in his kindness. 
Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. It's a demonstration of the power. Even though they were cut off, God can take one who was rejected and living in unbelief and graft them back in when they repent and receive by grace. Verse 24, after all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, I realize this is a difficult metaphor to, to maybe grasp, uh, but one of the things that is, I think, uh, as I was studying and, and learning on my horticulture, um, is this example that he is giving is you would never take uh, a wild olive shoot or branch and try to graft it into a healthy one because it would bear no fruit. It would absolutely have no impact whatsoever on that tree. And it would have no impact on what you've tried to graft in. And so people listening to this metaphor or listening to this analogy, as it were, Paul, you got your metaphor backwards. You take a healthy olive shoot, not a wild one. You take a healthy one into a wild shoot, and then that begins to have an impact where that tree can begin to bear fruit. So Paul has either mixed up his metaphors and doesn't know farming, doesn't know trees, doesn't know horticulture, or maybe Paul is actually trying to make another point. And I think that's exactly what Paul is absolutely trying to do, is we were the wild ones that were grafted in to a healthy tree, meaning the people of God. And because the root is healthy, Going all the way back to the patriarchs, Abraham received the righteousness of God as a gift, received it by faith. Going all the way back to the patriarchs, the root is going to have an impact on those of us who've been grafted in. I know this is a, a challenging metaphor, but it's the metaphor that Paul uses to illustrate this point is it's all by grace that we've even been grafted in. We shouldn't be because you'd normally never take something wild and put it into something healthy. But that's exactly what God has done. And you see this another principle, the kindness of God. You see the discipline of God or the sternness of God. If you ever saw a parent or met a parent who refused to discipline his kid, that would be a parent who is unloving to their child. A very loving thing to your child is to discipline him, to train him, so that when he does grow up, he just won't wander around and do whatever he wants. Discipline is a loving thing to do to your child. And not just disciplining their, their behaviors or their actions, as it were, but disciplining the attitude so that as you discipline the attitude, their actions begin to change. And this is what God has done. He says, or Paul says, that uh, God had cut off branches that God was disciplining the Jews for their disbelief or for their unbelief. I think one of the hard things for people in, in Christianity is to realize that actually God's discipline in our life is a demonstration of his love. Proverbs says this in chapter 3, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Jump to the New Testament in Hebrews. Chapter 12, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, 
but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Right now, what's happening with the Jewish nation is they are under judicial abandonment or the discipline of God, experiencing the sternness of God. And I like how Hebrews says it, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. I hope that there will be seasons of your life where you go through the discipline of God because he's training you through discipline for righteousness, for seasons of righteousness and just peace. I've said that a way that we root out spiritual arrogance is, this is the third way, the kindness of God, the discipline of God, and the power of God. I love the picture that even though there's unbelief right now with the Jewish nation, when there's repentance, when they come to receive by grace, by faith, Christ, God can graft them back into something he cut them out of. I love that God is powerful enough to do that very thing. So this is now the fifth reason of why theology should lead to worship or doxology is because of the kindness, discipline, and power of God. The God that has revealed himself, the God that I know is a God who is kind, is loving enough to discipline, and is powerful enough to do the unthinkable. Now Paul finishes here in Romans chapter 11 I'm not going to read all of these verses, but he finishes in Romans chapter 11 by reminding Gentile Christians, that would be us, for those of us who are Christians, that God's plan will be accomplished, okay? God has a plan for the Jewish nation, okay? Paul does not whiteboard this out. He doesn't make an organizational chart. Uh, He doesn't make a map. He just makes very clear that God is not done with the Jews. Even though that the Jews are currently living under They're rejecting Messiah, rejecting the Savior. God is not done with the Jewish nation. Now, some of you might think, well, what does that have to do with me? Why should I I care? I'm not Jewish. I don't even know many Jewish people. Well, you should care because it's spiritually arrogant to have the attitude of I don't care because salvation came first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. So you should care and be concerned of what is God's plan and purpose for the Jewish nation because they are the people of God. And because of Christ, I am now part of the people of God. And if God is using me, my life, to win Jewish people who are currently rejecting Jesus, then I better care about how I am living my life because God is using you, using me, using this church to win those who've rejected God back to God. Romans 11 says this, uh, verse 25 and, and 26, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, judicial abandonment, in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Then he quotes some Old Testament scripture in the rest of Romans 11, that talks about the salvation, the redemptive salvation plan for the Jewish people. Now, if you didn't catch this at the very end of verse 25, there's a certain number that God has of Gentiles that will come to faith. When that number is reached, now some will ask, well, how many is that number? Guess what? It's big. (laughs) It's big. I have no idea how big the number is. 
but God says when that number has come to completion, redemptive history will switch focus, not from the, uh, from the Gentiles, but now it will switch focus to the Jews. And he says, all Israel will be saved. Now, Paul is not saying that every single person of Israel in all space, time, and history of who's ever been a Jew will be, uh, become a Christian or a Messianic Jew. Now, how many people, you, you may have heard this, and I don't know if someone said this to you today, but all of Boston last night was watching the Bruins lose game two. Is that true that all of Boston was watching the Bruins last night? No. There was a lot of people who were watching the game last night. We use this word all to communicate that there's a lot of people, a lot of people, or all Bostonians, you know, you get the example. This is what Paul is saying is, it's not every single person, his way of communicating all is there is a large number of Jewish people that will come to salvation. This is how Paul finishes off Romans chapter uh, 11, and this is my number six of why should you worship God? Why should what God has revealed himself just in this chapter alone, why should it lead us to worship God? And number six is this, because of the mercy of God demonstrated to us in the gospel. A lot, all Jews, okay, I'm using all as, as Paul does, will come to a saving knowledge, saving relationship of the gospel. And Paul goes on and finishes in verse 30 and 32, just as you who were once, were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. Disobedience of the Jews led to mercy of God for the Gentiles. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that they, that he may have mercy on them all. Three verses. How many times is mercy mentioned? Four. You get the idea that what Paul is trying to communicate is there is sin. There is rejection. There is people who are disobedient. Why? Well, God wants to show disobedient, sinful people, people who reject him, people who are hard towards him, that he's merciful. The sixth reason of why our theology, what we know of God, should lead to worship God is because of the mercy that God has demonstrated to all people. If someone were to ask you, how would you describe God? Somewhere in your description better be, he's merciful God. He's given me what I don't deserve. What I do deserve is just separation, punishment, and eternity separated from God in hell. That's what I deserve because of my rebellious heart towards him. But I didn't get that. What God gave me instead was his son. By grace, I now have heaven. Somewhere in your description of how you describe who God is should be, he's a merciful God. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He gives sinful, sinful people not what they deserve, but he gives them grace. You ever cry, uncle? I don't know where this came from or how we come up with this, but if you cry uncle, that just means mercy. You ever play that game where, you know, you get two guys who want to hold hands and um, they need to act all tough about it, so they do this little thing and whoever's stronger, you know, as soon as one guy cries uncle, that means, okay, game's over, 
I'm hurting right now. You're, you win. You're the better man because you can hold hands tougher. So you cry uncle. And as I was thinking about that, uh, I was like, huh, what does it look like to cry uncle with God? You only cry uncle when you realize what you're doing is actually hurting yourself and you can't get yourself out of it and you can't fix it. There's nothing you can do. So you just say, will you stop? That's not a perfect example here because uh, God's not trying to crush your hand as it were, but God is definitely trying to draw you to him. And there must come a point in each of our lives where we say, uncle, I'm done trying to self-save. I'm done trying to work my way there. I just cry, uncle. I just cry mercy. God, would you be merciful to me? There will come a point in time where there will be a multitude of Jews who cry for mercy. There has already been in the last 2,000 years, millions and millions of Gentiles who've cried out for mercy. And as we finish today, I just wanted to finish with that. Have you cried out for mercy? Have you looked to the God of the universe and said, I'm done doing my thing, my way, in my time? Because I see it's actually hurting myself. And have you looked to the God of the universe and said, will you just, will you have mercy on me? If you've not done that before, today, as we would celebrate communion here, and as we would just finish with a time of worship through song. Romans 11 is the most difficult chapter, in my opinion, of all of Scripture. So challenging. But as I've gone through Romans 11, what I've seen is Paul wasn't confused by this. He actually worshiped God as the things that he knew of God. God does not reject those who reject him. God is faithful. God's made salvation possible to all. God redeems all things for his glory and our good. Because of his kindness, discipline, and power, we can worship God. Because of his great mercy that God's demonstrated to us in the gospel, we can worship. That's not an exhaustive list, but that's six reasons why we should worship God from Romans chapter 11. Is what you know of God leading you to worship him? Some here maybe came in and you're like, I had ideas and the God that you've just talked about, the God who's been merciful and compassionate and gracious, the God who can take horrific things and turn them into beautiful things, redeem them. I don't know this God. Well, the way that we know God, the only way that we can know God is through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian... A few moments, we'll worship and we're going to celebrate communion. Today, as you would come forth to celebrate communion, do so with great joy. Communion is it's, it's one of those things where it's, I'm remembering that Jesus died for me. Jesus sacrificed his life as an atonement, as paying the penalty for my sin. So I come in great humility for what Christ has done, but I come in great joy knowing that what Christ has done, the impact that it's had on me, forgiveness of sin and peace with God, both now and forever in heaven, should cause in us great joy. If you're not a Christian, if you've come to this place today, again, as I said, confused about God, know that God desires to have a relationship with you. He's not calling you or telling you to work your way towards him. He's calling you, inviting you to come to him by grace through his son, not through works, not through effort, but by faith 
in his son, Jesus. If you've not done that, place your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. That's the way we know God. That's the way we have a relationship with him. 